thank you for granting WLRN this interview, Maya Diller-Smith. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to speak with you today. Okay, so just to get started, could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Finding Middle Ground, and how it came to be? What's the goal of your organization? Sure. Finding Middle Ground was launched in response to my experiences working on the left and the right and coming to terms over the last year as I've been leading the ACLU of Georgia that the lobbies on the left and the right are advancing agendas that are so binary that they don't allow for robust dialogue on the critical public policy issues that we're tackling in our country. In fact, there are attempts to the conversations to be so binary that if you have a difference of opinion, you are very quickly branded anti or uh, against. Uh, you you have some type of phobia. You know, there's just not robust opportunity to agree to disagree civilly, and, and there are fewer and fewer opportunities for the electorate to engage in dialogue about public policy issues that affect all of our lives. And so Finding Middle Ground was initiated out of that as a safe place and digital community where people can engage on uh, contemporary, cutting-edge civil and human rights issues that are affecting us of the day. It is a place to exchange ideas and solutions. And our only expectation is that those folks that engage in our site uh, and in our platform do so with uh, an air toward respectability and civility. We can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. People are welcome to have counter opinions and differences of opinions. Uh, we, we seek to avoid personal attacks uh, on people for the opinions that they give, or if they're sharing personal experiences, we ask that people don't, don't respond directly to those, but talk more broadly about the experiences on the issue. Um, so we really uh, were birthed out of an organic um, desire that I was seeing of people who fall somewhere in the middle of those uh, uh, polar uh, opposite viewpoints, um, because most of us as Americans in particular are somewhere in the middle. We are somewhere nuanced on the issues, and there isn't a place to have those kind of in-depth public policy conversations um, these days. And so Finding Middle Ground was birthed to, to, to fill that need. We seek to raise the kinds of questions that stimulate dialogue such that people can make informed decisions about the issue. And in the context of transgender bathrooms, it has been my experience that people are ill-informed on the issue. And in particular, when you think about legislation like uh, North Carolina's HB2, House Bill 2, which has been widely reported in the media as a transgender bathroom bill, it has implications for the civil and human rights of all people. Anybody that works in that state, that, that bill implicates because there are other provisions in the bill that affect workplace discrimination and wrongful termination, that affect discrimination in contracting with government agencies, which are typically how small and minority and women-owned businesses um, get, get, uh, get healthy contracts. It also uh, precludes cities and localities from raising the minimum wage to a livable wage in the state that has the 10th highest poverty rate and wow. one of the largest African-American and minority populations in the country. 
And so how is it that a bill that impacts almost – it impacts anyone who works in the state has been dubbed in mainstream media and by the lobbyists and the, the elected officials as a transgender bathroom bill when, hmm. when the rights of so many people are implicated? Those are the things that we seek to expose at Finding Middle Ground, that we seek to educate the public on so that when they are reaching out to their legislators or they're engaging in their, you know, civic um, uh, uh, life, that they are doing so well-informed, without bias, without slant, without a agenda other than that Americans be fully informed on the issues that will impact their civil and human rights so they can make informed decisions for themselves and their families. We saw you recently on on The View, a talk show on ABC, and I wanted to know, what was that like for you? Did you feel like you had a fair hearing at that show? Well, let me say this. To your earlier point about the fact that mainstream media has not been willing to have this dialogue raises up questions about safety and privacy considerations for women and girls in the context of bathrooms. But in in reality, we need to be having a broader context about the larger rights of those groups and how they intersect and where they're competing and those sorts of things. But to your point, that the view actually called to hear the perspective uh, of women and girls, right? And I found early on, upon my separation from the ACLU that, and it was very conspicuous, that mainstream uh, news outlets and traditional progressive news outlets simply were not wanting to cover, you know, this issue of women and girls' safety in the context of transgender bathrooms or bathrooms in particular. And I was originally contacted by Fox. And I appeared on the Megan Kelly show, which is what really catapulted this conversation um, on a national level. And it's interesting because I'm a progressive woman. I am a Democrat, and I very seldom watch Fox. So how <laughs> interesting it is that the people who are willing to have the honest conversation are the people on the right. Mm. I have been uh, completely floored by that reality and fascinated by the experience that I've been shut out of communicating with a base that I thought I was a part of. And in fact, I consider myself a part of, but I think because of the strength of the LGBT lobby, they are unwilling to have conversations on this issue. And if you speak up and speak out, and not in opposition, because I've said nothing in opposition to transgender rights and finding accommodation in bathrooms for transgender people. I've simply been asking, what about the privacy and safety rights of women and girls, too. That means and, both. It does not mean mutually exclusive or zero-sum game. And so showing up on The View, I think, was a major accomplishment for those people who are interested in, in having a dialogue about the safety and privacy rights of women and girls. And, you know, while I understood that I was there to talk about some of my experiences, having separated from the ACLU, having been in a restroom where I was with my two daughters and three transgender young adults walked in. I quickly realized after reviewing the script, watching the show um, from the green room, 
that they were attempting to use me as a pawn for a broader narrative um, that would would do more to advance a particular position and agenda than to have an honest conversation about bathrooms and or an honest conversation about HB2, which was the way that The View was trying to couch the conversation about transgender bathrooms. And so I thought it very important to highlight the important um, uh, issue of discussing how any accommodations for transgender people in bathrooms ought to also consider the safety and privacy concerns of women and girls, not because trans people in and of themselves pose threats, but because when you have a law that says anybody gets to choose, that law is overbroad if the goal is to protect transgender people. It allows people who are not transgender or people who have malicious intent to also enter bathrooms, and that creates safety issues for women and girls. However, the mere mention of the rights of women and girls in this context is often met with backlash from transgender advocates as somehow painting all transgender people with a broad brush stroke of being, you know, violent or having a violent disposition toward women, and I've never said anything of the such. But I do believe that The View had a particular um, angle that they were interested in discussing. I do believe that the anchors were not well-educated on the law, and I believe that while they were, were not really interested in discussing the broader implications of HB2, and in the limited time that they we were able to discuss the perspective on uh, the rights of women and girls, I believe that I was able to articulate what is the important point, which is in these debates about bathrooms, we need to also be raising up the rights of other other groups, in particular women and girls. And I believe that resonated with the viewing public. And so, you know, lots of folks have reached out and many comment in the 300,000 views of the video after it was put on the internet. Um, People were really concerned that the media, the view, was was very um, one-sided, that they did not want the people to have information about broader HB2 implications. They did not want people to have information that talked about the rights of women and girls, too. And what I can say is that I welcome the opportunity in any environment, hostile, safe, or otherwise, to be talking about this these issues. They are that important. And I appreciate the opportunity to have elevated the conversation in an international platform like The View so that others around the globe can be having these conversations in their communities, at their state houses, and in their federal governments in the way that we've not yet done here in America. But I think that The View, and in particular the Kelly Files, really helped to amplify uh, the voices of women and girls in this in this very important um, public policy debate. Definitely resonating out here with us. It was so obvious that it was really just one-sided uh, discussion, um, and but yet still um, the points that you made regarding um, civil rights encroachments um, that didn't relate to that bill, which I had never heard um, before your your interview was was just mind blowing. So. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I will what I will add is the one thing if there was something where I I thought there was a line crossed mm-hmm. I thought there was a line crossed when asked by one of the one of the 
talk show host, a very short, quippy, well, don't you think you should teach your children X, Y, or Z? And I think that that illuminated for the world a very frequent articulation by, by those who are advocates that somehow parents need to be doing something different in how they're educating their children on some of these issues and when they should be doing and things of that nature. And I believe that's right around the time that they cut the entire interview before the time was over. And I heard from parents around the globe who were just taken aback by someone who has no children who grew up in a very radically different environment than the average child, telling a parent how they ought to raise their children and how they ought to speak to their children. And if having given the chance to respond, I would have simply educated that individual that parents have fundamental rights in the way that they educate their children. And whether or not someone agrees with that doesn't mean they get to take those rights away. Doesn't mean that you get to interject in the parenting of, of, of those children because you disagree with the manner in which, uh, the parents are, are teaching their children. And I believe that there were so many things that happened on that television show that has created a very robust constituency of strange bedfellows. I can tell you that in the time since and in all the comments that we've received at Finding Middle Ground, their support from radical feminists, their support from LG, I mean, from lesbians. Uh-huh. There are support from folks who, uh, in other aspects of the LGBT community, who speak up and say, you know, we think we think it's important to raise these issues too. It also, you know, there's strange support from the conservative right, from Tea Party members, from religious evangelicals who say we probably don't agree about anything, but we agree about this. And what we agree about, I'm not always sure. Because I don't know that anybody that has listened to me is clear that I've not articulated what I think the solution is. I've merely said, what about the rights of women and girls, too? I've been asking questions. I've not given a statement on what I believe or what I think. And so when people say we agree, I I assume they mean we agree that talking about this is important. And that is true. That is true. And so figuring out how on this issue to leverage the call that we at a bare minimum have a broader public policy conversation about this is important. And it has been mind-blowing to me that there's unity on this issue on the left and the right from lots of strange bedfellows. You mentioned just a few minutes ago the trans lobby. Um, Who who makes up this trans lobby that you speak of? Um, The trans lobby includes organizations, national organizations, and funders, philanthropists, individuals who finance the campaign to advance transgender rights. And there is a network, which many people don't understand, has a very progressive and liberal face, but is also financed by uh, Republicans and conservatives. And so there is bipartisan support on these things and on this issue, and not a lot of people understand that tricky dynamic. And so what's been interesting, let, let's let say in Georgia, for instance, 
um, last legislative session, we dealt with a religious refusal bill there. And the, the, the bill was largely couched as being anti-LGBT. But the reality is Georgia doesn't have any civil rights protections for any category of people. It's one of five states that still does not have comprehensive state civil rights protections. The birthplace of Martin has not given the people of Georgia civil rights protections, okay? And so I was a part of the uh, strategic group that was moving forward LGBT equality uh, agenda in the state of Georgia. Well, I'd sit at this table and I'd say, well, why would we do a reactive strategy that makes it look like they're beating up on us and we are constantly having to explain why these issues matter? And it's a tactic because it does make it look like people are beating up on on LGBT folks. Or, you know, the the right or the religious right would schedule a rally on a Thursday, and the group that I'd sit with would say, well, we're going to schedule ours on Tuesday so it'll make it look like they're beating up on us, right? And I very quickly realized I was sitting at a table that was engineering communications and images to give people a particular view of what was going on in the world around the issues they care about that was not in fact true and what i was not willing to do is to partake in the strategies i abhor on the right which are being done on the left because at the end of the day this is all about who has money and who can move an agenda and the people that have the money the lobbyists on the left and the right are the people that move agenda and that means that most of us who aren't wealthy enough to influence the outcome of elections or the outcome of legislative campaigns, we lose a voice. We lose voices in this thing, you know? And when there was an opportunity last legislative session, we are in the middle of a presidential election. We are at a tipping point on race in this country. We're at a tipping point on the equal rights of women in terms of equal pay. We're at a tipping point on immigration. How awesome it would have been if we would have had a different approach in the state of Georgia where we advanced comprehensive civil rights for all people that had LGBT people standing side by side with people of color in the birthplace of Martin Luther King, standing side by side with immigrants and women, saying we demand more from this state legislature that you will give all people basic civil and human rights. That, to me, seems like the mission of the organization I was then representing, which is to uphold the rights of all people. But we're living in a time where because of the lobbying that's happening, and it's just not happening in the LGBT context, it's happening in a bunch of contexts, that the people that pay get the greatest influence and get the greatest bullhorn, and they can buy the comms, which is why women can't get access in terms of mainstream media, because the media's already been bought by the lobbyists. It's frustrating. I mean, just seeing from a, from from a lesbian perspective, that a lot of the agendas um, or the lobby groups seem to be so um, fixated, you know, um, not on a larger civil rights um, agenda of of making sure that you know Black Lives Matter, for example, um, it don't, doesn't seem to be high on their agenda of concerns. It's 
it seems so so singularly focused on the transgender bathroom um, issues that it's 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 really quite perplexing. Well, it's interesting because I think that what you will begin to see, and this was true just as I was uh, transitioning out of the ACLU, is that I believe that the LGBT lobby recognizes that, and I think they recognize it. They recognize it because those folks like myself that sat at tables like this would call out would call out the fact that there was a used and exclude strategy in place, right? Uh-huh. When you need a black clergy to come out, you call them and you say, hey, I need you to come out in support of LGBT folks, and they show up. Uh-huh. But there's no reciprocity in those relationships. The, the, the converse does not happen. And part of the problem, I have to tell you, has to do with leadership in the lobby, right? At the tables that I was a part of, which were the people who invested money and who ultimately had decision-making power on strategy, the ACLU, uh, the Human Rights uh, uh, Campaign, uh, Americans United for Freedom, and a couple of other outfits, I recall very distinctly, and I, you know, that in those strategy conversations where there might have been six organizations represented, there might be 12 folks who are decision makers in, in, on strategy in the room, I distinctly remember um, counting one day. There were nine men and three women and one person of color, and she would be me. And so there, there is a issue in the lobby that it is not representative of the entire LGBT uh, community, and it's largely dominated by white men. Uh-huh. And so there's still a privilege, classist dynamic that happens even in this group, LGBT, which is, uh, you know, I think popularly thought to need uh, advancements and protection um, for themselves in our society, right? But the folks that are leading that charge are white men. There's not equality in leadership of the women. There's not equality in the leadership of people of color. And we know that the, the LGBT community is not monolithic. And I think what's been really interesting in this conversation around transgender bathroom is to see just the number of LGBT folks who also have lots of questions and lots of concerns. And and I find it interesting in this transgender bathroom debate about a lot of the arguments. I'll give you an example. When I have referred to my own experience in the bathroom, I've referred to the transgender young adults as being uh, men who were dressed in women's clothes. And I'm often told that I'm misgenderizing folks, right? Now, I have questions about is that, in fact, misgenderizing someone? I mean, is gender not based on the biology at birth? And there are advocates that say no. And there are other folks that have lots of questions. And there are folks that are trying to understand this distinction between sex and gender. And the law doesn't make a distinction. Gender and sex are synonymous under the law. And You know, there are interesting dynamics in that regard that require an elevated conversation, you know, and there are diversity of opinions even within and among advocates for the LGBT community who aren't per se unified on the issue of transgender bathrooms. But you may not know that because the way that it's constantly reported in the media is the LGBT community. Right. It's as if the entire community is in agreement. And I think what you're articulating as a lesbian woman is maybe not, you know, and just like African-Americans aren't monolithic, Latinos aren't monolithic, neither is the LGBT community. 
and where are the safe spaces to have conversations about how we create accommodations that protect trans people but also protect women too. And to me, our democracy is not reduced to a zero-sum game. And if we were part of a broader coalition, it would seem that we could have this conversation as black people and immigrants and women with our brothers and sisters who are LGBT to talk about how we advance the rights of all of us as a coalition, because that's typically what we're called to do in being supportive of moving an agenda for our LGBT brothers and sisters. Outstanding. Um, okay. Can can you talk a little bit about your background and what led you to take the job that you had at the ACLU in Georgia? Sure. You know, I, I've long been um, a civil and human rights activist. I have long seen myself as being a voice for the voiceless. I am not yet 40. I'm a millennial. I had my first daughter when I was 16 years old. I did my undergraduate at Berkeley. I uh, finished in four years and went straight to uh, Harvard's Kennedy School. I was the youngest person in my class and finished at age 23. I went to work in the executive office programs of the administrative offices of the court in the largest judiciary in the world. And in that, I was part of a two-person team that did jury system improvements um, after the California courts consolidated, and they moved to a um, a, one, one unified superior court, an appellate court, and the California Supreme Court. And so I traveled the state um, uh, really trying to figure out how to effectively consolidate what had been 58 county judicial systems and jury summon systems into a singular statewide system. And I was delighted to do that because what I've always understood is that the jury system is the bedrock of our justice system. And it's the bedrock of the defense of our individual rights and liberties, typically. And, you know, in a changing country and society where, you know, the demographics are shifting so so greatly, it's really important that, that the public understands why jury participation and having juries of, of one's peers are so important to um, the defense of their individual rights as guaranteed under the U.S. and state constitution. That being said, I, I transitioned from the administrative office of the court and uh, went to work for then-Governor Gavin Newsom right after the city had issued the ordinance allowing for the issuance of gay marriage licenses. But in my role at the mayor's office, I oversaw violence prevention and public safety for the city and county of San Francisco, um, orchestrating strategies of law enforcement on community policing and effective behavioral probation and aligning the resources of 14 city agencies to effectively implement a five-year strategy to reduce homicide in the city and county. And over the 10-year of the plan, we were we reduced homicide 50%. I managed there a budget of $350 million and implemented um, local gun control ordinances and things of that nature. Simultaneously, I was appointed um, to the Violence Prevention and Public Safety Oversight Committee for the city uh, for the city of Oakland, where I'm from. Oakland is regularly thought of as one of the most dangerous cities in America. I uh, helped design a 10-year strategy, $200 million investment for community policing and violence prevention, many elements of which have been raised up as best practices in community policing, and the, the Measure Y model has been used as a funding model for community policing in jurisdictions across the state of California and across the country. 
I was also simultaneously appointed to the California Commission on Judicial Performance, where I served for 10 years before the ACLU recruited me. And in that role, I investigated and disciplined uh, judges in the state of California, again, which is the largest law-trained judiciary in the world, and I was the youngest judicial oversight official. So I have a background in holding government accountable. I have a background in community policing and holding law enforcement accountable. I've worked at every level of government from local, state, and federal. I've got a background in uh, economics. I'm trained in public policy and the law. I've formerly worked for the U.S. Census Monitoring Board as a statistical researcher during the 2000 census. I was a researcher for the National Bureau of Economic Research. And so I've got a varied background. And I'm a jackie of all trades, and I'm a generalist on public policy issues, so I've got a wide swath. And my experiences, my lived experience as a teen mom, um, having uh, raised my daughter on my own and taken her with me to these universities, I've had to navigate a lot of the public systems that I've also helped to design. And so I've had both a bottom-up and top-down approach as both a designer of systems and an end user. And it gives me a unique perspective. And, you know, I think it's from that vantage point that I approach the work on civil and human rights, of which, you know, I'm dealing, I've, I've been dealing with issues of uh, gender equality and uh, reproductive rights of women and LGBT equality and uh, immigration reform and criminal justice reform and voting rights and privacy and technology and free speech. And those are all issues that fell under my bailiwick at the ACLU of Georgia. And so I was really delighted to be asked to take over what had been a fledgling organization, uh, which was bankrupt and without staff when I arrived. Within six months, we relo- relocated without a budget. We were in the center of all of the legal, uh, the law practices in, in Georgia and close to the Capitol, and really moving an agenda to really have impact in a state that is a critical battleground state as it relates to civil and human rights. So, yeah, that's that's kind of my wow. background and, and and where I come from. Wow. Blown away by, by, by your history there. Um, One of my mm-hmm. motivations, and I'm sorry to interrupt, is... No problem. I'm the great, great, great granddaughter of a slave that migrated to California, bought his freedom, and he initiated the landmark school desegregation case in California, uh, Weisinger versus Crochet in 1888. And that was decided before Plessy v. Ferguson, and it was a precedent in Brown versus the Board of Education. And so this work of civil and human rights is not just a personal passion. It is the legacy of those that have come before me and the, you know, acknowledgement of, of the debt owed to those who toiled in these fields and who really sought to have their children and grandchildren be part of this, uh, what should be a great democracy. And, you know, I see my work holistically in civil and human rights as as a continuance of that work and the liberation of all peoples in this country from economic oppression, racial oppression, and all forms of oppression, that we were all truly created equal. And how do we have a law system that reflects that? Thank you. The next question I have for you is, um, how does it feel as a black woman, as a civil rights activist, when young people, whether they're black, white, male, or female, call you a bigot? Where do you think this is coming from? Well, let me first tell you this, and I hope cussing is not um, no, that's okay. Because I have a, I have a <laughs> and this is a direct quote. I give two fucks, and here's why. I'm fine. 
Yeah, you can call me whatever you want. I did a lecture at the University of Washington Tacoma um, Women Speak Out event, and the event was uh, met with a very vocal, aggressive, borderline violent protest from transgender advocates who a lot of uh, transgender folks in the room, largely male to female, yelling and screaming and calling those of us born biologically female who who identify as female bitches. And I want to know, we're progressives when we talk about misogyny, because I don't know how it is that a man that identifies as a woman gets to call me a bitch and nobody has a problem with that, right? And once we get done with all the name callings, whether it's a nigger, a bitch, a bigot, or anything, I'm cool. Do you want to have the conversation on the issue now? Because what I find is we're living in a dangerous time on a whole range of issues where the easy cop-out is to make a personal attack on someone who disagrees with you by calling them a bigot because what most people do, they're not Maya. They don't say, oh, I don't give two Fs, right? They say, oh, no, I'm not a bigot. And then you spend the next hour defending yourself about why you're not a bigot as opposed to talking about the issues, right? And so – I'm fine. Get, are you done with the name calling? May we talk about the issues now? Because at the end of the day, none of that matters to me because it's not the truth of who I am. And my conscience is really, really clear. My conscience is very, very clean. And so I don't have a personal feeling about it. I have to say the the only thing that is ever of concern to me is the impact on my children because I am a mother. And we live in a time when my children have access to the Internet. They know how to Google my name. They know how to read the comments about me. But they also know my integrity. They know who I am. And we have very robust conversations in our household on a range of um, public policy issues. And the world is happening around them. They may not be able to vote, but they are very conscientious. When my daughter sits in a classroom and they're talking about Harriet Tubman um, becoming, you know, a, a figure on the $20 bill, bill, and one of my daughter's classmates say, I support Trump. I think Harriet Tubman is stupid. My kids are engaged in this world, and we have to have some really, you know, deep, difficult conversations. And that is true in this context, too. And so that I'm called a bigot is of zero consequence to me. I am really clear about what my um, what my thinking is on the issue thus far, but I'm a really open person, right? I have said I've got a lot to learn on this issue, right? I've got a lot to understand about this issue. I want to hear from women and girls. I want to hear from the LGBT community. I want to hear from trans people directly. I'm in conversation with folks about these issues because it's only through dialogue that we can develop understanding and empathy anyway, right? So I'm I'm very open in that regard, and I don't feel closed-minded to any of the policies or solutions that might emerge. Huh. And I think that we we are called to be open, right? I'm, right? I'm open, and I am asking other people to be open too. There are people that have differences of opinions, and we get our best. We get our best when we have different perspectives at the table that aren't lockstep with our own. And in fact, when I was running the ACLU, I wanted to surround myself not with yes people, not with people who all thought the same thing. That's the easy thing. I want to surround myself with people who have differences of opinion because it's from there that we can develop our best public policy that advances the concerns 
that, that are, that are germane to the individual right, but also consider the context and perspectives of folks who operate in the world around them on these issues. So I'm really open, you know, I, I just bring it back again that there is name calling, I think is a poor display to our young people about how we engage in a democracy and how we engage in civil discourse and public debate on policy issues. But, you know, we are watching the reduction of this democracy to name calling. That's wow. effectively what we're watching in this in this presidential politics and on these on these issue based politics, there is a lot of name calling that happened. And again, I believe the name calling happens to detract from the substance of the issue because most people spend their time defending their name and their reputation. My track record speaks for itself. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of how you were pushed out of your job at the ACLU? When did you notice that the ACLU was not living up to its mission? And what kinds of questions did you ask that they didn't like? Sure. Um, I knew about four months into the job that we were going to not always see eye to eye. And I began to, it was my first feelings of questions being unwelcome. And I asked lots of questions because we've got lots of competing issues. I asked questions about the ACLU stance on privacy and technology as it related to body cameras because the ACLU actually supports the issuance of body cameras to police. And when I asked, well, why is that? And they said, well, if we were looking at this from a pure privacy standpoint, we wouldn't support body cams because they give police exposure into people's homes if they're wearing them on the porch and and other kinds of uh, search capabilities. However, the ACLU said because they were using a racial justice lens, they supported it. Well, I'm an African-American woman, and I also um, worked for not just the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I worked for the City of Oakland's uh, City Attorney's Office that defends police. And so when I said, well, shouldn't you be concerned of the fact that the cameras aren't on the cops, the cameras are on suspects and citizens, and they allow police to to record things in people's homes and things of that nature, aren't you concerned about what it means when you're capturing things that could be used as evidence against suspects and things of that nature, which are classic Fourth Amendment violations? Well, they all went home. We hadn't thought about that. And when I said, my citizen rights aren't based on my blackness. They're based on my birth in this country. I don't think that you should be analyzing my privacy rights based on this racial, this flawed racial justice notion because you're actually creating greater exposure for people that look like me. Uh. But because the ACLU is largely a uh, white organization, it has uh, very few African Americans and other people of color. It doesn't have a good pulse on those issues. It lacks a cultural competency on those issues. And so that was an issue where there was was some backlash, okay? I asked questions about transgender bathrooms. No, I asked about transgender rights and, and asked for some education because I, I wanted to understand how advancing those rights intersects with other rights, women's rights, parental rights, 
and a slew of other rights. And we had superficial conversations, but when I asked for legal memos and things of that nature, there was an unwillingness to, to do that. So, you know, there were a number of issues where I realized we were unaligned. I'm concerned that because the ACLU now gets a significant amount of uh, political funding. It isn't taking cases based on its mission, which is to defend the rights of all people. It's not principally taking cases. It's taking cases based on what the political agenda is and who's actually writing, who's actually writing the checks for the political lobbying because therein lies the alignment. And as there is an expansion of this C4 um, work, I continue to say, how can you be principle in taking on these cases, not in not in an objective way anymore. And they hadn't really considered or reconciled that as far as I'm concerned. And so there were a host of issues that I was raising that was of concern um, for me, where I didn't think that there was robust conversation in that regard. And I could tell that it was going to be difficult. So besides failing to address the rights of women and girls, what other problems do you see with ACLU at large? You know, I am not interested in bashing the ACLU. I am Uh interested in raising concerns where they're genuine and they exist. But, Uh you know, there's a lot of great work that the ACLU has done historically. I just ask what is their mission and vision these days as they're taking on more C4 political lobbying funding to backfill losses and investments on the C3 litigation and public education side, because I think that's dangerous. If people are looking at the ACLU to be the defender of all rights, right, Uh it is no longer going to operate in that way. I can tell you, I'll give you a couple of examples. So the state of California recently enacted compulsory a compulsory requirement that all students educated in public schools have to be vaccinated. It did not provide for a religious exemption, which is pretty standard, right? Mm-hmm. Typically, it's the ACLU that, that argues for these religious exemptions. But the ACLU's typical religious positions are now in conflict as they're doing more work on LGBT equality and advancement because those things are can oftentimes be in conflict. So when I reached out to my colleagues who were overseeing um you know, the ACLs use work on this particular bill, I was very expressly told that one of the reasons the ACLU was not advancing a religious exemption is because they had reviewed the teachings and principles of institutional religions and found none that said as an express prohibition on vaccination. Well, the legal standard on religion and religious expression is not that you have to be affiliated with any institutional religion. The standard is you could believe in the sun, the moon, the stars, ants, and butterflies, and you still have a right to believe what you believe. And so it was a it was a disingenuous explanation, but it was their explanation nonetheless. When I said, okay, even if you weren't going to pursue a fundamental right under under the First Amendment, what about the fundamental rights of parents? And I was expressly told by a colleague they were unwilling to advance parental rights because that would give parents the right to opt out of LGBT curriculum in schools. I have to tell you, that deeply concerned me. How is it that you've made a decision to advance the right of one group 
at the expense of the fundamental right of another group. And you've done that unilaterally without considering what the implications are on the, politi- on the parental rights. If you have a mission to defend the rights of all people, how do you come to that, how do you come to that conclusion? And that is happening on a wide range of, of issues. And so those things are contrary to my beliefs and my principles about what it means to defend the rights of all people. Wow. Defend the rights of all people, again, required me to assess how do we prevent creating a hierarchy of rights, how do we avoid unintended consequences, and how do we ensure that we're not infringing too far on the rights of other people. Well, in that context I just described with you, that's a complete abdication and infringement on the rights of parents. What would you like WLRN listeners to know about the larger civil rights struggles that are happening in America today? I would I would convey um, to your listeners, and I thank you so much for having me, that we as Americans have to be ever so attuned to the laws that are being enacted at the state level as well as in Congress. Because like I described earlier in this interview, as well as on The View, HB2 is a great example about how a bill was communicated as one thing and had implications on the rights of everybody in the state on something that affects the livelihood of everybody in the state. And what I believe is happening is you will see more uh, bills like this where you have the outcome like Brexit, where people voted for something thinking it was one thing and woke up the next morning and said, God, I didn't know it was going to affect me like that. I didn't know these were the consequences of these things. And so we have to realize that's happening in America. And it is happening at a time when there is an attack on the civil and human rights of people and we have to be ever diligent and, um, you know, really attentive to what is being written in these laws by the people we elect and to hold them accountable and to educate those around us who may not have the information that we have. And that's so important because to the extent that we allow other folks' rights to be trampled, we expose ourselves to having our very own personal rights trampled as well. Um, last question I want to throw at you is, is there anything else you'd like WLRN listeners to know about, and um, how can we support your organization? You know, I just, I just have to say that I have been floored by the women around the globe who have just reached out in support to say thank you for speaking up on our behalf. Thank you for putting yourself in line's fire. Just reaching out and communicating a desire um, for there to be a voice on this issue. And so I just would encourage WLRN listeners to use your voice wherever you are to amplify this issue with your friends, with your colleagues, with your elected officials, so that we can have a broader conversation about bathrooms that also includes protecting the privacy and bodily safety rights of women and girls. And ways in which uh, folks can be engaged with Finding Middle Ground is go to our website, www.findingmiddleground.com or .org. Sign up for our newsletter, which is forthcoming. Stay engaged with us as we evolve. We are looking for um, folks who can assist with uh, social media strategy, folks who can help develop content, folks who can help um, expand the the reach of the organization to get more folks engaged in the dialogue, particularly 
on this first issue that we started with, which is the transgender bathroom. And we invite volunteer support. We are not unlike WLRN, a volunteer-run collective and organization, and it is really with the personal passion and the sweat equity of those volunteers that Finding Middle Ground was launched and has taken on a life of its own to create this safe space for folks to dialogue on an issue which was politically incorrect to talk about until, um, you know, The View called and and, uh, uh, Fox called. But now there's an opening and there's an awakening by people who really want to have this conversation. I get so many emails from folks that say, I can't talk about this. I'm concerned about losing my job, but I'm deeply, deeply troubled by this, or I'm deeply, deeply concerned about that. And thank you for speaking up for this. Or folks who say, I can't say it, but will you say, you know, and, (laughs) you know, and that, that isn't always the most comfortable position for, for me to be in, but I think it's important to have these conversations as uncomfortable as they may be, because we're in a moment of progress and progress can be uncomfortable and we must have the opportunity to have dialogue so that we can be our best selves. So that we can develop empathy. And, you know, I think that's really important, and I'd like to convey that. I think that the dialogue piece has been lacking in our politics. I think people are thirsting for um, opportunities to talk about these big issues. And I think people are looking for places where they can agree to disagree without being called bigot or without name-calling and just say, I just have a difference of opinion. You know, and I think that's a healthy, that is a healthy expectation in a democracy. Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you for speaking your truth and being someone who fights for and continues to advocate for the rights of all people. And um, I just want to personally tell you that it's been an honor to speak with you today. I know how difficult it is as a black woman to speak truth to power. And you're an inspiration to myself and many, many others. Um, I just want you to know that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you, Katina, and to your, your listeners. So thank you all very much.